0: This is the future and humanity is all but extinct. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages, then they begin touching. I volunteer as tribute! You can stop this, you can change things. I know that there's something more. Then we've only got one choice. We fight! Fight the Future with Dan and Paul Welcome to Fight the Future with Dan and Paul, the podcast where we review young adult dystopias. I'm Dan. I'm Paul. Sorry if we sound very, very similar, but that's what happens when you're brothers. Yeah, just enjoy the chorus. So, what do you like about dystopias? I like the, I mean, the whole idea, right, is it sort of shows this alternate view of the world. You know, the the people writing it, what they think the future might hold in a bad situation. I guess the whole point of a dystopia, you know, in literature usually is it actually reflects upon the time that it was written in as opposed to the time that they're trying to write about. Yeah, well said, Paul. It's what they're concerned about at that time that tells you a lot about them and about the time they were living in. Mm Mm-hmm. I like young adult ones especially because they're hopeful for the future. Like, unlike Brave New World in 1984, where you might as well just kill yourself at the end. Kind, Kind of a downer, yeah. Yeah, and we did read them in high school, but these other books and movies, because they're about young people, they're hopeful. People are trying to change the system. People are trying to rebel. Yeah. Fight the future. Fight the future. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the movie City of Ember, which is also adapted from a book, which is called What? The City of Ember. The City of Ember. All right. So they uh, dropped the. That was the big, that was the big change from the I book. hate it when they change the book for the movie. Yeah. Totally ruined. And in Italian, it is called Ember, il mistero della città di luce. And I'm watching the movies in Italian because that's how I work on my Italian. And Paul uh, has Wikipedia pages and everything up, and he's going to help out with all of the things that I maybe missed, didn't understand, because I was watching it in Italian. It's too, you know, people at home should know that you do know a lot of Italian. You are not just watching it in Italian. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you're not a complete... Uh, uh, you, you do understand Italian to some extent. It's true, yes. I have been studying it for a while. So I'm generally following it pretty well. But uh, some of the terminology may be different. The story. So we open in an underground chamber where everything's shaking, everything's falling apart. A scientist is rushing down the hallway. Something very bad is clearly going on. Yes, and he bursts in and says, okay, our plans are finalized for an underground city that's going to save humanity. Uh, These scientists have come together to put the finishing touches on it, which is this metal box that contains the instructions to be released in 200 years. They're like, yeah, things will probably be fine in 200 years. So we see there's a very cool montage sequence where we see that this box is being passed down from one mayor of the city to another. Yeah, so a mayor dies without having passed it on to his successor. Yes, and it ends up in a closet. The 200 years passes, the box opens, but there ain't anybody around to actually look at it. And so we're introduced to the city of Ember. It's almost like it's been transplanted from like Industrial Revolution England or something. Like it's this sort of cobblestone street city down underground with thousands and thousands and thousands of incandescent lights all hanging from the ceiling to make it all bright. Yeah, everything's kind of grimy. I would say post-World War II England. Yeah, I guess. But a heavy heaping of Art Deco. We're informed sort of as as the thing goes on that it's forbidden to even consider leaving the city. So we focus on these two kids, Lina and Dune. Uh, it's their 12th birthday, right? I believe so, yeah. And so it means that they have this big, uh, in, in Italian, it's the giornata della assignazione. Ooh, that's very fancy. Assignment day. Yeah. So this seems to be just like in the in the gym of the school or whatever. And this is when everyone gets their jobs, for ostensibly for the rest of their lives. And they pull them out of a hat. It seems to be pretty much random. Yeah, so they all get these jobs. And Lena gets... Pipeworks laborer. The idea is that there's all this infrastructure in this city, including pipes that are taking water everywhere. And so she she's supposed to be the one to uh, work on that. And then Dune, our other hero, gets to be a messenger. And we've been, we know previously that Dune really wants to work on the infrastructure of the city, and Lena really wants to be a messenger. Yeah, Dune's father is an inventor who Mm -hmm. has taught him a lot about the electronics of the city and the way the systems work. So he cares about that stuff. And the city is also not doing too well, there are frequent power failures. So Lena and Dune decide to swap jobs, and then they head off to their respective jobs. Lena becomes a a messenger, fleet of foot, uh, running around town. Dune gets to work with this grumpy worker played by Martin Landau, Sewell. Through them working together, we start seeing some of the infrastructure of the city. We see lots of leaky pipes and
1: things that
0: seem to be rusting. Everything is just patching. More and more patches, temporary patchwork on everything. So the story really starts with Uh, Her baby sister finding the box. Finding the box and uh, eating (laughs) a portion of the message message that's inside. So Lena now has in her hands this uh, set of instructions, which she realizes is the means by which they should all be leaving the city of Ember. She knows that Dune is good at figuring things out, so she brings him in and they start trying to piece together what's left of this map and instructions for how to leave the city. Um and the other thing that's in the uh that's in the box is this sort of transparent key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they do a series of explorations through these tunnels, through places that they're not supposed to go. Mm-hmm. In one of these explorations, they're attacked by a giant mole. Yeah. And they also find this secret room in a disused part of the underground. Inside, they find a ton of food. Food has started to become quite scarce. You know, They're sort of rationing and certain types of food. Pineapple, for instance, seems to be completely gone because everything comes out of cans. And so somebody seems to be stockpiling food. And in fact, they find that the mayor, played by uh, Bill Murray, sleeping in this stockpile and they realize that the mayor has in fact been stockpiling food uh, because I guess he he knows that the city is going to be in trouble uh, or is already in trouble and so he's sort of trying to make make the best of it and They go, oh no this is terrible we've got to go to the mayor's second in command that's right it's played by Toby Jones whereupon he goes go to the mayor and they immediately arrest him so, But that actually turns out to be a good thing, because it, right at that moment, there's a power failure, and they manage to nab the other half of the key from the mayor. It's in his pocket. So most of the rest of what happens is them following a series of elaborate steps to open up a series of doors, starting from the power station. Uh, it's, in, in the, it's the main reactor for the city. Right, which is a gigantic turbine with water rushing over it. Right, and it's you know obviously not doing very well because there's all these problems with the power in the city. Uh, and they go to it, and there's this sort of door that's been sealed that no one's able to get into, but the, this key that they have unlocks. And they go up, and there's this sort of very disused chamber where they uh, work to control the power station stuff. And the instructions they have say you push these ser- series of buttons. They do it, and basically all hell breaks loose. Yeah, the generator adjusts somehow to allow the water to flow over. And at the same time, this wooden boat flops down from one of the walls and starts traveling along a track towards yeah. there. Exactly like a Disney theme park ride. It turns out that hidden in the city, in this, like, locker room, behind every single locker, is one of these little log flume boats. <laughs> yeah, and in 200 years, nobody thought, like, hey, is that locker taken? Maybe I could put my stuff in there. <laughs> no. So then while... The rest of the whole town is doing this thing called the, it's like Song Day, where they all sing songs. And so Lena Dunn get in one of these boats. They take a leap of faith. This terrifying ride, like they travel down rapids and all through these dark passages and all this stuff. But ultimately, they're ejected into this cavern where they can walk up into the outside world. And the first reaction is, oh no, it's all gone. Right. It's all dark out here. And that's, you know, what they've been told is that outside Ember, it is just darkness, right? Ember is the only place where there's light. And they go outside, and it is all dark. And they're like, oh, crap. It's true. Yeah. And then the sun rises. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah, the sun rises. And they realize that, you know, not only is, you know, there a world out there and there's sun and everything, but it's actually quite a nice world. Like, it's not like everything is scarred by nuclear radiation or something. Yeah, I mean, if there's background radiation, they won't find out until a few days later when they start getting sick. Right, that's true, I suppose. It looks nice. It's green rolling hills. And they drop uh, they drop down a message back into the city. Yeah, they find this sort of crack in the, in the ground. It's a vent, and they drop a message, and Dune's father finds this message uh, wrapped up in a rock that explains how to get out of the city. Planting the seed for them to all make their escape. Plausibility. In this segment, we talk about how plausible is this dystopia? How do we get to this point, and how does it maintain itself as a dystopia? So, I mean, the first thing for this is that we don't actually know how we got to this point. The the disaster that is the inciting incident for ember is never really uh, made clear it's just something bad happens yeah it's it's a disaster that threatens to wipe out humanity like it's something that obviously going underground will solve but it's also what I found interesting is not only is something bad happening but it's happening on a slow enough scale that they actually like they don't start building the city until after it's already happening Right, because when he's going down the hall at the beginning, there's like a little bit of dust falling from the ceiling, showing that things are falling apart. Right. So, uh, so it's, it's a disaster that they have 50 years to deal with, but uh, not enough to stop it, only enough to build the city of Ember. Right. To save a... Uh, compar- I believe um, in the book they say it's, it's like 200 uh, adults and 200 children. Really, well, it's a bit more than that in the movie. It looks like at least a few thousand, or well, we'll but it's towards the end, so people probably reproduced. Mm. Like this is something I thought a lot about while watching it. Like, oh no, this a hundred, is a closed a system. Child, a hundred children, and a hundred adults. Okay, so there's only two hundred people to ensure wow. the human race would survive. Yeah, let's hope they like fucking. <laughs> but. But they do. I mean, by the time of the movie, there it looks like there's a few thousand people. Mm. Otherwise, it would be sheer hell on Earth. Like, I I was looking at these calculations. If you started with a 100,000 people in the city, although obviously they would have started with less, at our current population growth rate, over 200 years, you'd have a million people. Right. Uh, which the city could not handle unless you built it way over size. And I mean, that's, you know, entirely possible that's part of their... uh you know their resource problem is that there are more people than they originally planned. Right, right. So all of this stuff kind of is cool. Makes sense in the sense of it being towards the end of its life cycle. Mm-hmm. So, like, I mean, it's a good thing they found it right at that point and not say ten years later, after everything had completely fallen apart. Again, the book. According to the book, it's this is two hundred. This is forty-one years after the two hundred years. This is. 241 years after the uh, they went down there oh, okay okay so it's significantly past the point that it was planned to stop right yeah so that makes sense so okay so they constructed this artificial city according to a very specific aesthetic uh-huh. that is similar to Rhapsody Did, is that what it's called rapture rapture yes I sound they like were they were big Bioshock fans big Bioshock fans yeah so they decided to build a big statue of a a big daddy. Like it's interesting in, in that they that they decided to like it seems like a city almost that was transported down into into a cave as opposed to a city that was sort of built in the cave. That's interesting. What made you see that? Well, just I mean there's all sorts of weird stuff like like you know the cobblestone roads. There's actually like streetcar Uh, the streetcar tracks tracks in the roads um which we sort of later find out might be in order for all the boats to move around on the tracks ah Uh, but like i wrote in my notes like that's what the tracks are for (laughs) like (laughs) seriously for these little rickety wooden boats that are supposed to transport precious humanity nobody in the 241 years be like why are there tracks everywhere (laughs) and you know the sort of weird low quality incandescent bulbs that are everywhere. You know, fluorescent right. lights. They <laughs> use way less power. Compact fluorescence. LEDs, you know? They wouldn't the the, the generator would have no issues. <laughs> also, what is the generator working on exactly? I mean one would assume geothermal. Geothermal. But who knows? Yeah, but you know, there's something really appealing about the idea of building a bottle city. Building a like the city of Candor, actually a better example is the um, uh, Sand series um, by uh, I, I forget the author, but it's about a, an entire city built in a silo or an entire society that is in this silo, and it's about like how could you actually have this world that is absolutely contained? There's no outside stuff. Right. We learn that there's canned food, so that means that they there's supplies. We never see, like, the enormous warehouse that it must contain. We only see little bits of it. Yeah, we do see we do see parts of warehouses and stuff. And we also see where the warehouse and that there are a lot of empty shelves. Right, right. Because according to the book, it's 40 years past the... Mm-hmm. So they did a good job with buffering it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, but not as much as you might think. <laughs> like So, yeah. So, like, I found it interesting with, like... So there's this box that has the instructions on how to get out. Mm-hmm. I was try- trying to figure out, like, I guess, like, was the box secret? Yeah, why didn't they, like, why did they need to lock it, for one thing? And if it was secret, then why were the mares holding it in their portraits? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and they're like, hey, wait a minute. After this point, the mares stop holding this weird box in their portraits. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever noticed it. That mayor's name, by the way, is... Pod Morthwart. nice. Which is a great, you know, fantasy name. So, the line that I thought that that informed the entirety of the plan of Ember, that happens at the very beginning of the movie, um, you know, when they lock this box and they, uh, you know, this will be open in two hundred years. So future generations will be spared the sorrow for what they've lost. And that's like, that seems to be the like the entire basis for this whole thing. Is that not only are they going to move everyone into the underground, but they're actually deliberately, deliberately forgetting about the yeah, outside world. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, there's a deliberate forgetting process. Like stuff like, I mean, um, even like like the at the end or near the end of the movie, there's like the song day, right? Yeah. And all the songs they sing are about Ember itself. Right. There's no human songs left, there's no like regular in fact, be coming around the mountain. I'm bringing sexy back. What did the I, I wrote this down because I thought it was funny that in the, like the hymns that they're singing, it's like, you know, we are part of ember, you know, the sun shines above. This is all we know, like this is all we know is actually part of the hymn that they're singing. yeah <laughs> We are dumb and we like it and so so there's this idea that like at at whenever the original people went down into ember. There is a deliberate decision not to tell their kids about the outside world. Right. There seemed to be a big emphasis on kids, on the next generation. And that, like, and that you know, this box, that there's this idea that, that there is a way out is secret. The idea that people can leave will or will be able to one day leave Ember is a secret. And, and impossible to leave until it opens up. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the process for leaving is, the, I mean, to the point where... The only way to get into, not only to get to 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 leave, but notice that the the way to get into the generator, to like access the control room for the generator. You needed to have the two keys from this box. Right, right. Which seemed weird to me. Like, I mean, there are other things. There are there were all sorts of buttons and switches in that generator control room that you think they would want to ac- have access to. <laughs> right. Considering their generator was literally on fire like <laughs> yeah. the day before, <laughs> like it it had like dozens of buttons on it, and but there, really, there's only one button that's important. Yeah. At the end. Yeah, it funny. It seemed like it, a, a very um, yeah. Like I didn't quite see why they couldn't just be like, you know, this terrible thing happened to the outside world, but there will come a day. You know when the great box opens and we'll all be set free. Right. Yeah, that would be important to encode. I don't know. Maybe something somewhere along the line corrupted it to say, "This yeah. is all there is. You shouldn't hope for the future." In the book, um, it's actually not even revealed until they get outside that they were in a cave. Right. See, this is this is the way that the story should have been told, in my opinion, um, because I, I'm sure I'm sure that they shot it one way or wrote it one way for the movie, and then somebody got scared and said, people are not going to know what's going on. Uh, They're going to be confused. So let's put something at the beginning that makes it absolutely clear. But I'll bet in the book it starts off with, we're in the city, we've always been in the city, and then you gradually find out that uh, people put them there. Mm -hmm. Like that's much cooler than just laying it all out at the beginning. Right, right. Yeah, it's a silo series is what I was referring to, which is a very similar premise to this. The first book is called Wool by Hugh Howey. And it's really cool examination of the same thing that took a lot more care with how this world would actually function, all the food growing and all of the cultural things. But it has the same thing, that it's taboo to even think about the outside, to even go to hmm. the outside. Yeah, like, I mean, if this was actually intended as a... Like, it's interesting, because of the all the canned food um it's you know the 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 city obviously does have sort of an expiration date yeah yeah nobody like thinks about that or worries about that if it was actually designed to be a perpetual city then like you know 70% of the city would be greenhouses or or you know food <laughs> right. growing um as a side note literally drawing your job from a hat right so yeah let's talk about the other half of plausibility how the society functions right now like that's insane (laughs) that seems like a bad system yeah that's like like other dystopias are stupid whatever you like the hunger hunger games you know district 12 everybody is a coal miner right whatever (laughs) uh at least there's some like you know genetic that like you know your father was a coal miner and can teach you about coal mining or whatever. Right. I mean, this is like the system in the Hunger Games is similar to the system that has been used by humanity for most of our history, which is you do what your dad does. But this is lit- like if they hadn't switched the the things, literally, like the the girl would have would have worked in the pipeworks, which she didn't know anything about that. Right. Uh and the kid And didn't want and didn't want to do it. And all. didn't want to do, and the 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 boy who was super interested in uh, mechanical stuff and trying to figure out how the generator worked would have been a messenger. Nope, sorry, kid. Uh, yeah, there should have had like a little frail girl who's like, and you will be the heavy object lifter. And well, two people, the two uh, of the jobs that I wrote down that kids were assigned, a kid was assigned to be a potato peeler <laughs> for that's, that's your job for your entire <laughs> life. <laughs> and a kid was a ju- was assigned to be a mold scraper, <laughs> right? And then after every one, Bill Murray would go. That's a very important job, yeah, very, very good. Critical, critical. So job. I mean, there's this thing right where I I mean, there's this like, and it was literally a, a hat that they would draw a piece of paper out of, right? Yeah, yeah. And there was literally nothing stopping people from trading with there. There was no taboo against well, rejecting your job. Yeah, they didn't talk. I think there is they more about that in the book. But in the movie, yeah, there didn't seem... Not only was it that they switched their jobs, but then the idea was that Dune wanted to switch with another kid to be... Yeah, there's a whole economy of jobs, which is, of course, what would happen if you had an insane system like this. Yeah, so everyone... Like, it's... Uh, Like, what's to stop you from buying the job you want in whatever currency that you might use? There was no currency, right? It was a very communistic society.
1: Yeah, and of course,
0: 100% employment. Right. Um, yeah, there you go. Even if it's mold scraper, but you on are the other hand, technically employed. Yeah, like what if you suck at your job? Like, do you get fired? Can you get fired? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, we saw this Martin Landau sucked at his job, and things were falling apart as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh Nothing would happen, so it's amazing that it lasted two hundred years. So that was yeah. Like I feel like a lot. Of the problems with the city it might be come down to the fact that nobody knows what the hell they're doing. <laughs> right. The basic problem is the job hat, and nobody. If I was elected mayor, which there's how is it? How does that happen anyway? I but yeah, maybe he drew mayor out of the hat. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> when he was twelve. Yeah. Uh, they, by the way, they look like they're different ages too, which didn't well, make a lot of sense. And they but they they sort of go to. They seem to sort of go to school for X amount of time. You draw your job, and then everything else is on-the-job training. But, uh, okay, let's just talk real quickly about the basics of this world. So there's no money. Uh, there's Although there is, I mean, there's a barter system, I think. Barter system, yes. So As would always sort of grow up in any situation where you have scarcity. Right. But people are basically doing okay, it seems like. Um, but but in, any, in any case, there's no, it's very small. Everything happens in this little tiny city. It's very slightly religious, yeah uh, with this sort of builder religion yeah and I, th- I think that's a bigger deal in the book that there's sort of this this cult of the builders huh okay so we've talked about how plausible this world is yeah no basically I think in terms of plausibility what is depicted in the movie is accurate in that it's not it, <laughs> it is not gonna work for very long it doesn't work doesn't make very much yeah. sense if people if some you know People who are left on the uh, left on the surface, come down and investigate what happened to Ember ten years after the movie. There is nothing there, like it's wow. That's dark. <laughs> like it is just an abandoned city. Like I feel like the city is very much in trouble. I don't know. It seemed like they could get along a little while longer without resorting to cannibalism. Well, they it's... could eat the giant moths. But the like the generator was gonna die. It's true so then there's no light and everyone dies <laughs> good point okay good point scariness how scary is this dystopia so it's it's scary that everything is failing that the lights keep going out yeah like i feel like you know if the you know if the sort of generator and stuff had been operational it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be that bad necessarily, especially, you know, if you grew up in this culture so that you wouldn't really know any alternative. I mean, it would suck if you get assigned to be mold scraper. Right. Then your day is just scraping mold. But we don't follow that character. No, no. Presumably she's still down there scraping mold. Yep. At the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but as dystopias go, it's not that dark. Like, it's actually kind of cozy. The people seem to actually get along... Yeah, people are nice, except for the fact that literally every single adult is hiding a deep a dark secret. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but, they all have some, but usually it's a good secret, like they're more heroic than you thought. Right, right. But like there's there's some sort of secret going on. Uh like like you know almost all the adults when you ask them about certain things will be like, "No, we don't talk about that," or whatever. So there's secrets, secrets and lies. Tearing us apart, you know. It's not like it's sort of a like a police state or anything, really. Well, we do see the guy dragged away and beaten up by police, but it's very that seems like a rare occurrence. Just yeah, in the, with the and forbidden and the, zone. And the girl, uh, you know, once she, you know, sort of uh, accuses the mayor of of stuff, is going to be arrested. Things, but yeah, it is a dictatorship, but a yeah, a fairly a fairly cozy one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a small town, so it can, can't get too oppressive. S- so it actually lacks this thing that other dystopias have of the, the sense that the state is this big grinding machine that you can just be caught up in. Yeah. You're this anatom- I mean, it's basically, anonymous person. It's basically just Bill Murray. <laughs> right. And he's not even that evil. He's just like greedy. And he wants all that canned pineapple. And it isn't, yeah, and, and it is very like this sort of small towny, thing where like you know for instance where messages are sent by foot um and by you know just by people's names and stuff right like do you think the messenger is one of those jobs they had to make up to fill up the hat (laughs) like they have electricity why could they not have telephones doesn't he use a telephone at one point i don't know yeah well uh, yeah because they no no there there used to be telephones because she has an answering machine right Oh right right that that's a cool point so yeah the she telephones have, replays a message the telephones have broken down I guess Ah, I see yeah, okay that sort of makes sense but in a, a town that small, couldn't you just use say word of mouth to yeah. get messages like just pass it along but like every everybody seems to sort of know everyone else right yeah so it's okay, but on like, the other hand like for instance when when the girl goes uh when when the girl is being chased by the cops, they put up a wanted sign that just has her name on it. <laughs> That's true. It's like, That's wanted this person. <laughs> <laughs> right. No picture. Yeah, so it's like, oh, are you that person? Nope. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why would they have to put up a sign if everybody knows everybody, too? He sort of, the guy, Dune... The, the leads, I thought, the main characters were very uninteresting, but he, he would just... Uh, basically, the only character trait they have is the character trait that every young adult dystopian character has, which is nosiness mm-hmm. It's very curiosity, important. like a lethal amount of curiosity. Uh, OK, so speaking of scariness, the thing that I would, I would not trade this cozy little world for is the giant moles.: Yes. I believe that's something from the, that wasn't really in the book, just you know to add more visual excitement in the movie. but the enormous uh, animals. You know, I don't know if that's a you know sort of a reference to the idea that there was some sort of like nuclear thing going on that was or natural extrapolation of evolution over 200 years. (laughs) Yeah, moles will be enormous, but But, for some reason all the insects and animals seem to have gotten huge. Yeah, but it leads to this terrifying sequence where they're uh, they're just poking around in the tunnels essentially, and it. Uh, A star-nosed mole, the size of like three elephants put together, starts attacking them like crazy. Uh, Like, do moles eat people? It doesn't make a lot of sense. I thought they ate insects. Hey, it's only because they're small. If a mole could (laughs) eat you, it would. Yeah, it's a star-nosed mole too, which is particularly horrible. Yeah. So for about two minutes, yeah, the movie turns into like a crazy horror movie uh, that would certainly have traumatized me. And so, by the way, they built the city to protect against unknown ecological catastrophe. Cannot protect against moles. No, no. There was, there was one guy who was like, maybe we should have a thing in case there are enormous moles. And everyone was like, no, that's ridiculous. Crazy talk. I think, I think maybe we should use those resources for more food instead. All righty. More, more incandescent light bulbs. You guys are going to be sorry when the giant moles come. Ha! I told you so. He says so at the end. And by the way, like, Bill Murray getting eaten by the giant mole. It's supposed to be this comeuppance type of moment. But A, he hasn't been opposing him that hard. And B, uh, it's just random. Like, why would the mole be in this? I guess it's to punish him for his cowardice. How did the mole get inside the room? Right, which was locked, as I recall. Uh, And also just had a small door. Yeah, it was metal made out of metal in general. I mean, if we saw them all sort of burrowing through walls of things, it would be a different matter. But yeah, that's scary, and there's also an implication of giant dung beetles out there somewhere. They right, find right. an right. So, that part is scary, but not particularly dystopian scary. No, no. How would they do? Uh, I mean... How, how would you do if you were... Okay, yeah, the sorting hat would be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think how you would do... Like I think you would probably do fine because it's pretty much impossible not to do fine because you just do whatever your, the sorting cat tells However you to badly, do. However badly. And that's pretty much what you do. I think you would make an excellent mold scraper. Mm, I'd scrape the hell out of that mold. Yeah. It's a good solid day's work. Yeah. I think we would do fine, but I don't think we would be, you know, the ones to go looking for the exit, you know. No, I would be like that. Sounds dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, we would do fine, but sort of, unless somebody else was doing the whole looking for the exit thing, I think we'd be in trouble in the long in the long run. We'd be the ones going, oh, lights are out. Hmm. I don't know what it, I don't know what that's all about. Does this should I stop scraping mold? Should I continue? Yeah, do do I get a day off? (laughs) Hope for the future. Hope for the future. That's pretty good. I mean, well, certainly in the movie, once they figure out that you can get out, um, I mean, disseminating that information back to Ember is a tricky part. I question their method of just dropping a rock down and hoping somebody finds it. Right. But he does. The father finds the rock, and that presumably starts the whole process. Right. Okay, but I disagree with you completely. I disagree that it's hopeful. Because what we find at the end of the movie is that they're sitting on a hillside, completely bare. And nowhere along their journey have they seen to the outside world, has have they been supplied with materials to build shelter, uh food, any kind of helpful thing that would lead you to be able to construct a society. Mm-hmm. You would hope that they would that the yeah the builders would have put some kind of starter kit by the exit. Yeah, instead it's just like this way. No, go this way. Be careful with the babies. Yeah, they seem to be very obsessed with babies. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was that was cute. I like that. Except that, you know, they're like use the baskets provided to so you can gently carry the babies. The babies had to survive a terrifying log fume ride. Yeah, yeah. To get to that point. Uh so and the baskets were not there at the beginning of the log fume ride. So it's like, whatever babies survive, they're tough. They're ready to build a new society. Right, right. We only want the toughest of babies. <laughs> right. It's kind of, they're kind of like the Spartans. Right, right. So what happens after the end of the movie? Oh, by the way, yeah, this is where you can tell me what happens in the rest of the books. Right, so, okay, so the, a big difference being is that in the book... So the the Dune's father is not as much of a character uh-huh. in the book, and the person who finds the rock in the book at the end is the uh, the woman who was uh, taking care of them. Okay, which is uh, Mrs. Murdo, which is okay. kind of, Which actually I kind of like the idea because she was, you know, she's sort of, uh, you know, she she was sort of all in on the whole Ember thing. So I kind of like the idea that she's the one who finds the thing and, you know, starts, starts Ember on the process of everybody leaving as opposed, because I mean, if the fa- when the father finds the thing and it's like, aha, I knew it. There's a way out of the city. Everyone goes, okay, Mr. Crazy Tinkerer guy who, who previously had some, you know, his friend die because they were trying to find a way out of the city. Yes, we right. will definitely believe you. Right. <laughs> um, so that I think that's slightly I, I kind of like that, but so from what I've been able to gather, um, so there's four books in the series. Four books. Yeah, um, it seems like too many books. The second one is a or the third one is a prequel. Okay. So the second book actually picks up after every, everyone has left Ember. Okay. They walk along like a a path outside for a few days. Uh, and they come to a town, and there's just like a town, uh, with people living in it, um, who are survivors from whatever happened. Holy cow! Mind blown. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and so the the second book is all about the people of Ember sort of integ- integrating back into this other town. As winter is coming, the town is having trouble. You know, they're having trouble dealing with this huge influx of population that don't know anything about being outside. So, where do you get your canned pineapple from? <laughs> yeah, I don't see a lot of cans around. Heavy duty uh, use of all the uh, sunscreen too, probably. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're. You guys are a little pale. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of uh, North Koreans leaving North Korea and going to South Korea and how disoriented they are. Yeah. The potato peeler guy, he's always going to have a job, though. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, he's the king now. The king of the refugees. Whereas Whereas the pipeworks guy, he's going to have a lot of trouble. Right. The pipeworks guy is having trouble. The mold scraper is quickly finding out that their job isn't quite as important as it used to be. Whatever mold there is, you better believe it's well scraped in this new world. The third book is like a prequel that has, that doesn't, it sort of, it, it seems to be from the synopsis I was able to get, doesn't seem to be actually that closely related, except for the sense that like one of the people in it is one of the planners for Ember, but it's not actually about like the planning of the creation of Ember and stuff. It's about some other stuff. Okay. Just about like day-to-day life of the people who will one day build Ember? Uh Yeah. <sighs> Prequels, and then the fourth book, uh, they is actually um, they find out like some more stuff about they they go back to Ember, and there are some people who are just kind of squatting there now. Okay, the the builders apparently left or left this power source that's like solar powered thing that allows that, you know that that gives a whole bunch of extra power and stuff that are sort of these diamonds or crystals or something the builders did indeed have a thing for what they would do when they get onto the outside but that information was somehow lost or ah uh-huh. yeah this this whole series is about weird people making incredibly elaborate plans that are then fucked up by their descendants well i was thinking about you know there's a thing you know in the in the real world the the clock of the long now oh yeah or, i've heard of pretty, that yeah it's this idea of i i mean it's it's sort of started out as a thought experiment and i think they actually are working on it as a a real thing but this idea of creating a uh in this case there's a clock that can you know that will like ring after like a millennium or something hmm. and just the this sort of idea of like what kind of stuff do you have to take into account and what things and the idea of trying to like store information for a really long period of time when, you know, when all the, you know, not even like the written, you know, written word might have changed so much that people won't really understand it and that kind of stuff. And you think about that. And then, for instance, the big problem that they ran into in this in this movie was that the instructions for how to get out was written on a piece of paper. Right. I noticed that, they, too. You know, I, have a, I have a note about that. If they had written it on, you know, something a little bit more sturdy, or maybe hadn't folded right, the paper. Right. She has to piece it together so that most of the instructions are, are holes now. Yeah. Like, it, they could have easily killed themselves, possibly other people. Or the entirety of, like, they, they literally, like, messed up the entire infrastructure in the process of getting out, right? Like, they'd stopped, right. Uh, yeah, they stopped there. Right. Yeah. They, well, except the lights seem to be on at the end. But like they stop the 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 water wheels things, and the thing to start the water wheel things again is in the control room that the door is locked to, and they have the key for. <laughs> right. So this is a very fragile plan. Yeah. Uh, that is based on writing things down on paper and keeping them secret. And then folding that paper up and putting into a thing. Like, I don't know. I did a little bit of work for you know a, a museum company, and, and there's all sorts of things about you know even just archival photographs and stuff there's very you know if you want to yeah, like, if, if you want a photograph to survive for 50 years there's all sorts of you know special like acid free paper and special ways of handling it so that your uh you know they, so the oils from your skin don't get on it uh and you know folding it is generally considered to be a bad idea right For and by the way it's it's yellowed the paper's yellowed yeah yeah So, you know, you write it, maybe they could have written it on, you know, a piece of plastic or metal. Yeah, given that they built an entire crazy city from scratch. Yeah, the success of the entire city depended on this one piece of information getting delivered at the appropriate time. Right, very, very weird Rube Goldberg device with many failure points, at which point everybody dies horribly. Yeah. If any one step fails. Like I... I'm just imagining the, you know, they go through the entire process, and they, you know, change the water wheels and do all the things, and then, you know, it locks into a hitherto unseen gear that starts turning, and, and then just a little sign pops out that says, "Go this way." Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just like a door, <laughs> and you just have to walk along. Yeah, the along door a just tunnel. pops open. There was stuff that was like that for a while. Yeah, there was stuff like that in the movie where they went through a whole series of elaborate steps and then just like, here's a key. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but so the future seems hopeful based on the books. Like, I like that idea that, that humanity wasn't wiped out, but that maybe the people of Ember represent some kind of hopefulness, like that they will have a different nature that will be preserved. Maybe the survivors will all be like Cormac McCarthy, the road esque, you know, (laughs) all burnt out. Whereas the Ember people are like, hello, we're from the, we're from Oliver." Let us, yes, let us sing you the songs of our people. Oh, here we. uh, Is it singing day? Yeah, (laughs) is it singing day yet? The thing I kept thinking about, um, uh, the video game um, Fallout, because there's a whole thing in this, you know, there's a nuclear war and. There's these people go into these sort of vaults that are time-locked for like 200 years or 500 years or something. And it becomes clear over the course of the game that these vaults, while being designed to preserve humanity over the course of, you know, this nuclear apocalypse, also had this ulterior motive where there's, you know, there's hundreds of vaults across the United States. And a lot of them were designed as, like, experiments as well as as well as, you know, preserving things. So there'd be like one vault where they get a whole bunch of people all with who look the same. Or like there's one vault that's entirely filled with clones of one guy. Oh. Or there's, you know, a vault that's entirely women with one man, or there's a vault entirely men with one woman. Or there's a vault where, you know, everyone is you know, has all the best stuff. And there's a vault where everyone has all the worst stuff. What I like about that is that that has a point of view about the Builders, namely that they're assholes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, rather it's like the Volt Corporation. Like, we're basically in the same relationship to the Builders as the people of Ember, in the sense that we're supposed to think that they are cool and doing the right thing, whereas they seem rather insane. Yeah, yeah. They seem like they are maybe not the best people for the job. Yeah. Maybe they were like a, a skunkworks project. Yeah. Like most, like most of the government of the, of the world was like, eh, I think it's probably going to be okay. And they were like, no, no, we got to do this. Yeah. What's skunkworks? Like a uh, not uh, officially sanctioned. Sure. Yeah. A little budget surplus. It's like, you know, we got to spend this money or we won't get it next year. Let's build <laughs> right, an right. underground city to last 200 years. Maybe there was no disaster. Oh, jeez. Wow. You're blowing my mind. You're certain it will be long? None of us can be certain of anything. We can hope. Growing up with no knowledge of a world outside, future generations will be spared sorrow for what they've lost. For the good of all mankind. with Dan and Paul. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah, and join us next time when we'll be doing another book, uh, The White Mountains, which is part of the Tripods trilogy. And we'll also be looking at When the Tripods Came, which is the prequel. And a reminder that this podcast, as with everything that we do on Loading Ready Run, is sponsored by our Patreon at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. Our theme song is by Bradley Rains. And the interstitial segments are by Chiara Kant. If you enjoy this podcast, uh, please help us out by subscribing, rating, or reviewing it on iTunes. Or you can give us feedback on our forums at loadingreadyrun.com forum. I want to give a special shout out to forum user Rose Nightshade, who mentioned City of Ember on the forums. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Bye. Bye. Ci vediamo! <laughs>